You're listening to episode 38 of Hear the Boots interview series. In this episode, we talk with Vincent Venturella. Running time for this episode is 52 minutes. Welcome to Fear the Boot. My name is Dan. My name is John. This is Brodor. Okay, and joining us again is Vincent Venturella, who we've got here uh, once again to talk more about D&D 5th Edition. We've got a whole bunch of questions from you guys that we still need to cover. So welcome back, Vince. Thank you very much. Once again, very glad to be here. Okay, and Broder, you had a comment you were making before the mics were running that I told you to repeat on the mics because I think it's a great observation. So to say 5th edition is a simpler game, I don't think that that necessarily has a derogatory connotation. I think that it is an easier game to play for both the player and the and the game master, but particularly for game master, one of the things that I love about the game is I like the easier math. I like like the lower numbers. I like the fact that I open up the monster manual and the pit fiend's got a fucking 19 AC, right? And I know that your basic fighter at a lower level could hit that creature, even though it has its damage reductions, etc. But I like that the math is easier. I like that it's not so complicated uh, for both myself, the game master, and for the player to, did I hit? Yada yada, right? I, I, I think that it makes it go more smoothly. It's much more streamlined. And if you're on the spectrum like I am, I think that it's a little <laughs> bit easier to actually facilitate a game session. I, I will say one of the experiences, and I'm not bashing 335 or Pathfinder here, uh, because I have played all three games and I have enjoyed all three games. But I will say one of the things that seemed to consistently happen in almost every campaign I played was people would realize uh, partway through the game that they had been forgetting to add in this one little obscure plus one or plus two or minus one or minus two that they were supposed to get because of the way that this stacked and that stacked and these two things played off of each other. And, you know, crunch doesn't bother me. I'm, I don't have a problem with crunch. No, no, no. I, I but concur. It, it certainly was something that I saw create some stumbles in the game. And so it certainly is nice to have at least the option of playing a system that rolls some of that back. Right. I so, like psychotic, uncontrollable variants. And if you're rolling one 20-sided dice, it's the most perfect channel of variance you can possibly find because it's... You have a 5% chance of hitting anything there. If a top-end modifier is plus 8 and not plus 42, as it was in the previous edition or two, uh, there's still a little more of that white-knuckle character chucking that D20. Um, so I don't mind the math like you do, Brodor, you madman. But uh, <laughs> but I do like having the random chaos of rolling out in the open and uh, making a D20 have the lion's share of the say as to what happens, as opposed to your level three character with all the appropriate magazine sided splat books boxes that has a 27 modifier to his stealth rule. You know, we, t- we touched on it last episode, but that flat math you're describing has a lot of other tangential benefits as well, not all of which are, shall we say, exceedingly positive to the PCs at first blush. Exactly. That is to say, a group of orcs are very deadly to PCs for a long time, right? Until you can get to, like, very powerful magics that can just flatline them or something like that. And that's a good thing. Oh, I concur. I absolutely agree it makes the game a more flat experience. Uh, again, it was one of the genius things of previous editions that post 10 or somewhere in there, 
you flattened out. And so it gives you as a GM much more tools. You don't have to just find like this tiny sliver of monsters that are the appropriate challenge for your PCs. Mm. You can pick from this wide swath, whatever's appropriate for your narrative at that moment. And that's very empowering. At the same time, it keeps you on the edge of your seat as a player because you never know if those orcs are going to be, you know, chafe or, or really scary. That can happen very quickly. So I, I think there's just a lot of great benefits to it. Side story, I agree with you on the math. The reality on that is people are terrible at math. And everybody who ever played third edition cheated. And I don't mean that in a negative way. I just mean we all did it. I did it. I consider myself pretty good at math. I cheated all the time, not intentionally, just because there was a lot of different modifiers. They were getting thrown around and moving. Anybody who ever took like negative eight dexterity in a game and then continued on in a combat, like you took negative eight in the middle of a combat, you cheated the rest of that combat because you forgot the cascading penalties that flowed out from that, right? Everybody cheats anyway. RPGs are full of rotten cheaters, mostly GMs, but also PCs. I hate all of you gamers listening to this. No, just kidding. I love all of you, but don't cheat in my game. So, all right, next question that we're going to cover, the first one for this episode This one comes from Bob. Many gamers, myself included, think the 5e rule set is underspecified and offloads way too much work onto the DM. For example, the hide action requires the DM to determine when it's appropriate to use, provides no guidance on moving silently, and has an uncomfortable amount of interpretation built into it. Sneaking up in combat, for example. Uh, The people here know me. I tend to play fast and loose with rules, which, yes, I can concur that is correct based on I I do know the individual asking this question Uh, continuing hell I'm known for running games using candy instead of dice which is also true but I certainly feel that a game like D&D needs harder line rules are there any plans to firm up these rules I realize that's a somewhat broad question but I'll let you have a crack at it sure so I can't speak to the are there plans to firm anything up or anything like that? Obviously, I can't really speak to any future thing, right? If I've seen it, I can't talk about it. If I haven't seen it, I don't know. But I'll speak to the other thing. I, I, I think that is the it, we live in the best possible world. I think it is the best case scenario and that even though Bob is saying this, he wouldn't like it in the other world. Because in the other world, what you get is the text for, let's say, use magic device in the third edition player's handbook, which is like a page and a half. Yes, it is. And I don't mean that in a negative way. It's fine for what it was. You mentioned I'm not – this is not me bagging on third edition. I love that game. My God, I played it for its entirety. I have dedicated hundreds of hours of my life to it, and I'm very thoroughly glad that it existed. But what that did is if you create these very hard rules and say you can stealth here and here and here, and this is how it works here, the number of situations where you would want to hide is innumerable. The standard thing we think of is like I'm sneaking around in the shadows. I need to go stab somebody. Well, that's fine. I can probably educate that pretty clearly. What if I'm standing in fog? How much fog do I need? What percentage of fog, right? What if I'm trying to tail somebody in the streets in a busy crowd? Well, I'm hiding in plain sight, but I still need to be hidden from them, like from their sort of perception of me following them. Is that still hiding? Can I use my hiding skill there? What if I'm trying to hide some action about myself of what I'm doing? but not necessarily me. So there's a million situations that can spill out from hiding and variance. And the right answer is not to try to codify all those into rules because you could write a book on it and still not cover all the cases. The right answer is to explain to the GM what you're trying to do. The GM knows the situation and says, okay, you can either do that 
and this is how you do it, make me this check, or nope, you can't because there's a nuclear bomb going off in the background and you know, that's, you're know you not going to be hiding right now. There was certainly a difference in design philosophy, and I'm not speaking specifically about D&D here. I'm speaking about games in general, which is I remember going through games in the 1980s where it was very much the fad that everything had a rule. That if it could be done, there were going to be rules explaining how to do it and corresponding charts and rules and all this stuff. And the games became very, very heavy. Okay, And I don't, I don't want to use a value judgment here like burdened because I think this really comes down to personal taste. And one of the things that came out of really the independent and more experimental games was they returned a lot of agency to the players, the game masters, they basically said, look, we're going to stop treating you like we don't trust you. We're just going to say, you figure it out. You know, you know what it means to do this. Use your best judgment. We're going to hope everyone's an adult and can get along. And we're going to give a paragraph to this instead of a chapter to it. Uh, and there were many games that did that, that intentionally underdefined what was going on. And you know, I, let me stress that I can't tell you one is better than the other. I can simply tell you that there are different design philosophies. Um, and I certainly don't want to speak on Bob's intention as, as to asking the question. It sounds like, and once again, stressing here, I'm just guessing, but it sounds like that D&D to him is a game that ought to have a little bit more specificity to it uh, than for, say, what he might expect out of fate or, or something like that. But it sounds like the D&D is somewhat strained from its past in that regard, that instead of a whole lot of splat and detail and supplementary rules in Dragon Magazine, that it's kind of going more the way of, I'll keep bagging on this canard, of fate, of basically saying, well, you know, you're generally doing this, and as adults, we expect you to sort of figure that out. Is, do you think that's a correct characterization? I do. And, and let me say two things to that. So first, if you Google like the history of anti-magic shell, somebody wrote a great article <laughs> where they compared anti-magic shell in every edition of D&D. And that is a parable for the entire history of D&D up until, let's say, like third edition. Because if you look at it in the original box set, so 74 box set, it's like two sentences. Like, it shuts off magic in an area around you. I mean, something that simple, right? Like a five-foot area around you or something. And then you get up to the third edition description, and it's a book, right? It can't stop breath weapons, but it does stop this, and it'll hedge out outsiders, and if da-da-da-da-da, and you can't push it on someone, and all these corner cases get answered. And what we're really talking about is the 80-20 rule. 20% of the rules in the book are going to govern 80% of the cases you run into. Uh, probably more, legitimately, right? But what people kept running into was they, they had corner cases that fell in that other percentage and they looked in the rules and didn't see answers. And so you're, I think you're absolutely right about the historical trend throughout the late eighties and early nineties. The idea became, let's answer all those questions. We can write rules for everything. And of course, I personally believe that's a fool's errand. It's chasing the dragon. You're never going to get there. I'm not saying that rules, heavy systems are bad. Not at all. I'm saying that if your goal is to define everything you will fail. Our, our next question comes from Caspian. One of the biggest marketing slash release philosophy differences I've seen with 5e against previous editions is in the material that has been released so far. With 5e, there have been adventures released, but unlike previous editions, there's not been any campaign settings released 
or other splat books up to this point. What led to this change, especially when you are releasing adventures that describe details of a setting, such as Forgotten Realms, that you haven't released an official 5e setting book for. So, I mean, I know you said you're under a lot of uh, NDAs and such. Is there a campaign book coming out for Forgotten Realms? Uh, (laughs) Do you know what the thinking is on why some of these additional books have not been released, why it's been much more core literature uh, without... I mean, certainly I know that in second edition they went to the far extreme where they were printing books as almost a self-inflicted Ponzi scheme (laughs) to keep the company afloat. So I I can't imagine that's what he's talking about. But there you go. There's the question. What do you make of that? I don't suppose any of you have your copy of the Shi'ar handbook, you know, hot on hand, speaking about second edition. Yeah, certainly it was the case that they over-released. And I I won't speak to what's coming out. I personal guessing, like, I think you'll see setting material in some way or another, be that books or online or whatever, because, of course, there's a lot of interest in that. That is not in any way an endorsed statement by Watsi. That's just my own personal thing. Now, that being said, you get a, you get a, a lot of what the Forgotten Realms is about through the player's handbook since it's the default setting now, right? And there's also a lot of detail out there about the Forgotten Realms. So I, you know, I'm not sure that they need to publish more books. Ed Greenwood is probably chained to a typewriter somewhere and can't uh, just, you know, still trying to bang out material about the Forgotten Realms. I picture him more like a Richard Garriott sort of individual where I think he just keeps doing it on his own because the line between fiction and reality has gotten just a little bit blurred for him. Do you know the story of how he sent in the original Forgotten Realms material? No, I do not. Okay, so when they first bought the Forgotten Realms from Ed Greenwood, way, way, way back in the day, right? Okay. They were talking to him, and of course, there's no, this is pre-real, like, internet or computers or anything. I mean, certainly the internet kind of existed, but it wasn't really a thing you were communicating over. And so they were talking to him through the mail and stuff like that, and they came to a sort of agreement and signed contracts and money was exchanged, and... He sent them everything he had written on Forgotten Realms, like all of his organized files, on uh, big five and uh, five and a half floppy disks, okay, wrapped in plastic wrap, wrapped in foil, and then put in protected shipping packages and sent through the mail, like one disk per package. So, yeah, pretty fun. And these carried what, uh, half of a megabyte each? Yes, uh, I don't remember the size of five and a, five and a half floppies. Wasn't much. I know yeah, that. Yeah, not a lot. Yeah, it wasn't much. But I mean, when you're talking all text, I mean, you can really fill a lot. That's right? true. That's yeah, true. you can. I, I find it. Well, I don't want to harp on this too much, but I kind of find it funny that he wrapped them in plastic, given the fact that plastic is notoriously staticky, and that's a really bad idea for magnetic media. It might have gone the other way around. It might have been foil and then plastic on top. Right? I mean, it's been a while since I've talked or heard the story. But right, it was, right. They were double secured and then then still packaged envelopes. But yeah, and I could do a whole episode. I actually have done at least part of episodes on why I think Richard Garriott's out of his mind. And I don't think Ed Reed one's on that level. I mean, he thinks he's Gandalf or Elminster or whatever, but it's as far <laughs> as it seems to go. So anyway, all right, next one. This is from Ben. When you have martial arts class... Oh, you know, actually, let me pause here before I read this one, because this is kind of a specific rules question. There were a couple of people that suggested that we get somebody actually from Watsi who does 
their rules Q and A, or as a more you know line developer on D and D. And we actually did attempt that. So if you guys are wondering why are we not talking to somebody from Watsi in addition to Vince, uh, the answer is because Watsi decided to be bureaucratic and told me to first put details of the interview through a PR department, which I kind of rolled my eyes at, but then did, and their PR department never responded to me. Uh, so if you're like, well, why aren't you going straight to Watsi? Well, one, I'm curious to hear what Vince has to say about this. But secondly, even if I wanted to talk to somebody from Watsi, for an industry that's constantly being described in terms of how small and insular and mom and pop it is, Watsi loves to be the weird group out. So, well, well sure. And Vince's story is cool yeah, because this is cooler than Watsi. Yeah, for sure. I and, agree. And and he's not part of the inner circle. I mean, he's not in his urban camo with his purple armband with the white circle and the and the letters W O T C in some strange weird sigil format. He's a fucking gun for hire. They said, you know what? Our inner circle guys are good, but we want your opinion, Mister Mercy game guy that's badass yeah when, when you can't trust the regulars to do it you gotta bring in the mercs we were gonna do that one year at gen con we were gonna cosplay the watsies so we were gonna go around in those uniforms and then whenever people use verbiage like tap we would give them citations but <laughs> or, nice. or hit points or, yeah. or whatever and if anyone walks up to you dressed as santa you all have to change out a costume and quit <laughs> For anyone not following that joke, Watsi's notorious for doing Christmas Yeah, layoff. listen to the previous episode and you'll get it. Yeah, okay. So anyways, question eight. Ben asks, and this is a, a fairly specific rules question. When you have martial arts class features from the monk, does it allow you to make an extra attack while in beast form from Druid? All right, so we got our... Wait, what? It's multi-classing. <laughs> this, this isn't a design question. <laughs> you know what? It's fine. This is what people get out of D&D. Bite, claw, pounce, etc. Being in beast form does deny you the ability to cast spells, but does not take away class features and abilities <laughs> as far as the base rules. Sans Rod, I have not read. Okay, I'll answer this. So here's here's my first answer. If you're really inclined to fish rules on this level and not just sort of ask your GM and investigate it, which I think line number one should just be ask your GM, both of you look at the book, come to a decision. There you go. If you can't do that and you want a more official answer, Mike Merles and Jeremy Crawford, as well as like Rodney Thompson, a lot of these guys who are very heavily involved in the D&D design process are on Twitter. They tweet all the time. Follow them. They talk about really cool, interesting stuff. And if you tweet rules questions at Mike and Jeremy, they will often answer them. Yeah. What What is Jeremy's? It's the uh, Sage Advice. Is that what it's called? Correct. I'm blanking out here. Okay, so yeah, I'll link that in the show notes. So if you want to ask a specific question from the official Watsi guru, uh, that would be Jeremy, who does Sage Advice. And I'll link to his Twitter account in the show notes. So if you want to ask him these kinds of questions. Uh, you know, funny story about Mike Merles. John and I were supposed to be speaking on panels at a convention with him some years back. And... Icon 2008? 2007, I think. But yes, yes, either way, 2007, 2008. So we would show up for these panels, and Mike Merles was nowhere to be seen. So we thought he'd just blown off the convention or something like that. Turns out for all these panels, he was sitting in the audience and was there, present in the room, but would not come up front and actually participate. <laughs> it was a, wow. 
I have no idea what to make of that. I'm sure I've met him, but I don't know who he is. Yeah. In fact, Vince, I think you're Mike Merles. Rodor, I think you're Mike Merles. <laughs> Any of us could be Mike Merles. That's right. So, all right, the next question. This comes from Sam. The D20 mechanic is now a hallmark of D&D, even though there are probably other mechanics that can equally produce a high adventure feel. When doing rules, do they feel constrained by the D20 thing, find ways to work around it, ever discuss using a new mechanic, does it boil down to D20 is still their favorite option? And at least reading between the lines here, I don't think he's talking about the actual OGL D20. I think he's just more talking about the central mechanic of using a D20 and structuring, you know, the 3 to 18 attributes and things. The core mechanic that's become the hallmark of D&D. Yeah, sure. So there's a lot buried in here. So let's go... Real quick history lesson on the D20 as the D20 system, This the way it works. D20 obviously takes its origination from Ars Magica, originally published in 1987 by Jonathan Tweet, who basically birthed the D20 system as we know it. Okay, And then it event, Jonathan Tweet eventually joins the 3X design team, integrates his previous learnings into that. It becomes part of the OGL. It blows up, blah, blah, blah. Okay, so... It's been a pedigree in the game since, let's say, 2000, and the D20 has always been the attack die, although, again, knowing going back to second edition, you were certainly using a large suite of dice. Sometimes you were rolling up, down, you were using percentiles, right? It was all over the shop. It didn't get really unified until there. Now, what I'll say is that I've mentioned that I think tradition is more important in D&D than, than most other games, and I really do believe that because expectations matter with D&D. They matter a lot. People think that their version of D&D or the way they see it, the lens through which they see D&D, is the D&D. They don't separate the personal from the thing. So I think to go away from it would be, I, I would say, like, again, personal opinion, I would say just marketing suicide at this point because of the success of Pathfinder and 3rd and Edition D&D and everything that that has spawned. It grew the market just massively. 2001 was like adjusted for inflation either the first or second biggest year for D&D ever. So I, I think, yes, it is absolutely just a thing now. Now, that being said, there's a subtle point underneath here that I want to touch on. In here, he said uh, the, the question, the way it was phrased was like, you know, there are these other mechanics that can equally produce a high adventure feel or might there not be other better mechanics? My answer would be it doesn't matter. Because mechanics don't really matter. And that's going to sound crazy coming from a game designer. But what I mean is that the idea that the mechanics serve the game is what's important, not some platonic form of like the quality of the rule, right? That usually doesn't matter very much at all. As long as it's a functional rule, okay, great, we've hit the bar. If the rule helps to create the tone and the feel of the game that you want, the game that, that you are playing, then it's a good rule. There's no greater good beyond that that you're trying to design rules toward. This next one comes from Jeremy, and I think this is, at least to me, I, this is perhaps the most important or central question to this entire discussion. Why should players and DMs switch to 5e from other systems or editions. Now, let me rephrase this in my own words because I think this cuts to the core of something I really want to know. Let's say I'm a Pathfinder player, I'm a 3-5 player, I'm a 2nd edition player, whatever, I'm a 4th edition player, but you know, I'm playing some other edition of D&D or some other game. 
why should I switch to fifth edition? And the reason I think this is such a great question is because I realize there's a simple answer by which you could say, well, you know, use a system that works best for you. And, you know, maybe you don't need to switch if your system's really working for you. But I think what this gets to is what is the central value proposition or what are the distinguishing traits of 5e that set it apart from its competitor products and therefore make it at least subjectively more attractive than these other products. You know, if I'm a, if I, if I've got gobs of Pathfinder books, which I don't, I'm actually more of a 3.0 man, which I realize is heresy because I'm not even 3.5, much less 3.75. But why would you tell me I ought to try 5e? So first of all, I agree with your prior statement, right? So your own taste is king. Don't play something you don't like, of course. I mean, duh. Like, games are here to serve us and to have fun and for us to all have a good experience together. There's not some game you should play because you've got an ethical responsibility to or something, right? (laughs) Okay, so that caveat out of the way. Simple answer, it's the best edition of D&D that's ever been printed. And I'm including all fantasy heartbreakers and other things on that. That's because it had the most playtesting. It had the best look back and respect for its own history. It integrated things in the best possible way to the total tradition of the game. You'll be able to see the elements of any edition you like in there, but it also is combined with, as I mentioned earlier, you know, the 20, 25 years since I would place it at like the early 90s where you had this explosion of the evolution of technology and game design, probably starting with like Vampire, although that has some earlier roots, but of other types of game design of influences from indie RPGs and narrative RPGs and things like this to all be synergized into really a hallmark product that can speak to anyone regardless of the edition they favor, that can produce a wide variance of adventure types and experiences and keeps its heart right where it should be on a collaborative role-playing experience that is not bogged down by any one particular part. It values everything, the combat, the character, the exploration, the experience, the narrative. All of that is equally treated and treated with reverence. And I'm going to ask you a question, and I'm asking this for the sake of listeners because I already know the answer. But if somebody wants to try the rule set uh, without committing to purchase the, uh, depending on who you ask, the between one and three major core rule books. Are there free and quick start editions available online they can try uh, to see if this, in fact, is worth the jump from whatever game they're playing over to D&D 5e? Oh, yes, there most certainly is. So if you just search up like, you know, I Google search like D&D 5e quick start, I'm pretty sure the top hit will be. Uh, you know, the quick start guide and rules from from Watsy's site, which you can download for free. It's on the same page as like the character sheets and all those sorts of things you would need to get rolling. It's not like lacking rules. That is to say, like, it doesn't, you know, we didn't include all the attack bonuses or something. It's not that. It just has a skinny down simplified version of the game. Less races, less classes, but it certainly gives you the full experience of the core of the game. You can have a very full, fun experience and figure out if it's for you. And I will link that in the show notes. If anyone wants to go out and look at the D&D 5e quick start rules or the various supplements that Watsi has made available, then I will be sure to link that in the show notes so you guys can find it. Well, and, and not to sound like a shill for a product because I don't retail product anymore, but that $20 fifth edition starter box set you can get at your FLGS, it's well worth the 20 bucks. What's on it? Can you quickly speak? So, just very quickly speak. So to that. you get a, a sixty-four page 
uh, rule book or rule book adventure. I'm going to misquote that. Something in there is 64 pages. I think it's actually the adventure booklet because I believe it takes you from first to fifth level. Okay. You get five pre-generated characters. You get dice and then a quick start rule set. And I think there might be a map in there as well, okay. like a combat. All right. Map well, well, I'll look that product up yeah, and I'll be but, sure to link but that But for one. 20 bucks, it's a steal. Okay. This one comes from Micah. What materials are they planning on producing to provide ongoing adventure materials for DMs? So I think this is one of the strengths. They've, uh, again, I won't talk to the future, but I'll talk to the past. They've been really consistent with releasing like some very good quality, like 1 to 15-ish adventures that are very cool, very narrative, lots of different options. They're well-written adventure paths that focus on and explore interesting aspects of the D&D mythos. Um, and there's a lot to unpack there, but when you get into like the lower planes and stuff like that, which is what the most recent one sort of focused on, on these big demon lords and such, part of D&D is absolutely tied up in these things like the Abyss and Bator and Gehenna and these demon lords and all this, the, the Great Wheel and all these kinds of things, which are a bit goofy, but that's what makes them great. And each of these adventures explores some section of that in a pretty nice way. There's additional support on the website as well for this kind of stuff with, you know, hooks and adventure ideas and things like that. And and I think that, again, I don't see sales numbers or anything like that, but my impression of it as an outsider is that they've been very successful. So I certainly wouldn't expect them to stop. This next question came from Jason and you gave me a two word response. And I, I will accept that two word response. Or if you want to, you can expound on this a little bit more. Says, I'd like to hear more about a sanity rules system. They touch on it in the DMG along with a few insanities slash madnesses. Me too. Yeah, that was your two-word response to me. So hopefully we'll have more coming down the pipe for that. This question also comes from Jason. He says, also, what about being able to tag bonds like in Fate and award inspiration, raising the cap from one point to one half a character level? I'll I'll read my response verbatim. Okay. Which is... Seems like a fine house rule. I don't like the bookkeeping and entails, but if it works for you, then it seems fine. So that would drastically change the power of the PCs, that is to say, which is fine. Again, if you want to portray very heroic PCs who are very lucky and can pull things out even when they're very tough, hey, fine, that's a good way to do it. I think that the one is exactly the right number because I really like binomial things, things that are off or on, light switches um, in game design, because they're easy to remember. Anything that you have to bookkeep is taking up space in your brain, and the more stuff you're taking up your brain power with of tracking numbers and how many of these things do I have or those things do I have means you're not focusing on the game and you're not role-playing, and that's what we're here to do. So I, I like to gut as much of that stuff as possible in my design. That being said, if it works for your group and that's the story you want to portray and the feel of your game, cool. House rule it. I mean, it's your game. I hope I pronounced this right because I got corrected on the pronunciation of this next name. This one comes from Kite, and what Kite wants to know is, one of my sisters would be very upset with me if I didn't throw a request in the pot for why there doesn't seem to be any flanking rules. They're in the DMG, and when you flank, you draw a straight line from yourself to your ally through the square of the opponent, and you have advantage. Exactly, and what I was also going to say is, so I think in my response to you, what I said is, one of the goals of... 5e. Let me let me take it back to the very beginning of, of when it was like D&D Next. The original idea when, when Monty Cook and Mike Merles were sort of talking about this forever and ever ago was that the game itself would be this very simple core. 
utilizing the truth of D&D, those things that were true in all editions. And then on top of that, these modular bolt-on optional systems would sit that could enhance complexity or build the game in a particular direction. So let me give you a very easy example that's non-controversial. You want a Dark Sun-ish game. Okay, cool. In other words, a survival game. Well, then things like tracking your food, your water, your exhaustion, those kind of things that add the grit matter. So here's a bolt-on system that's going to make that happen. But that doesn't need to be in the core rules because that's not what most D&D is about. So D&D in its core form should be theater of the mind. And flanking is one of those things that seems to really want a battle mat, right? As you just said when you explained it, I have to sort of see my figs and I have to be able to draw this line between them which is fine. If that's the way you play, then bring in all these rules. In base, if you've got some huge dragon and you're like, you just described that the two of you are standing on opposite sides of him, the GM isn't now forced to give advantage out, (laughs) right? Even though, of course, there's going to be two of you standing on opposite sides of that thing. He's the size of a barn. It doesn't effectively give you any (laughs) great advantage at fighting him. He's the size of a battleship rolling around the field. Standing on opposite sides of him is almost necessary. So the GM has much more lever over that when it gets moved to that optional sort of way. It's put off on the side in the DM, and he gets to decide the type of game he wants. This next one is from Donald. With the relegating of feats to secondary status, was there a focus on making there more options within a class, and how well did you do? <laughs> I, I, you, you know my answer to this, so that's why I'm laughing. But All right, I'll give my answer. And I don't mean this flippantly. I wanted no feats... And I wanted less options within a class. So I'm probably not the right person to ask in this regard. And it's clear that they didn't listen to me. And that's probably better for their success in the market because I am an outlier. In that what, regard. Can you explain why? Why did you want there to be less options for a class? This is one of the great, I think, mistakes of people and what we want. We feel like if there's more things there on the page, I get to be a more diverse, stronger, better character. But what you're really being is just a samier character because there's nothing exciting about it. There's no reveal to it. It drives you toward the level ladder where like, I just got to get the next level and then I get this. I just got to get the next level and then I get this. It makes it so the only points of interest and advancement in the game are on the one experience point that happens to be a level change, right? What I much prefer is the idea that advancement comes in the game, in the narrative, where the GM is awarding special rewards, special abilities, you're finding magic items, you're finding ancient spells, you're getting narrative bennies of having like a favor from the king, and you're getting in good with the princess, and, and you're getting some farmland, or whatever it happens to be. I mean, the list is infinite. And that's just it. That list is infinite. The list that's written on that page is by its definition finite. And everybody who ever plays that will have that experience, period. Your experience is not unique. You are not special because you got to level seven. Congratulations on reaching a milestone that anybody who happened to put in the time could get to. But your story and your story reward is utterly unique to you and to me, memorable. Nobody ever says, it was so awesome when I got to level X and got an extra attack. Remember that? You remember that time that happened when I got to level X and got an extra attack? Yeah, that was cool, man. No, they say, you know, like your stories from the previous episodes of Gnarl. Like those story moments you remember from Gnarl. It's not when you hit a level. It's things that evolve from the narrative. Yeah, he actually, in that game, we almost didn't level. But we were playing under E6. Yeah, we very rarely leveled. The actual power level of the characters almost never changed. This next one, I, 
I love your first sentence of your response to this, but I'll let you choose how you want to tackle this. This one also comes from Donald. With a new addition, what fixes were you trying to fix? Or more directly, what were some of the proven ideas from Forth that had to be brought over? So I'll couch it with, I mean no offense to this, okay? If if you love it, then you made the right choice. But, uh, you know, the real problem for my and many players' perspectives was that 4E wasn't D&D. And what I mean that is what needed to be fixed was to break more things. 4E was too tight. It was too smooth mechanically and too well boxed. It was a perfect Apple iPhone product. The problem is that's not D&D. D&D is a game of weird picadillos and oddities and proud nails and just things that are that are weird, that are just weird. It's a game of rings of contrariness and flasks of curses and oils of illusion and just items that you know corked that are change their size to fit any bottle. That's D&D. And it's all of that stuff in the world. And by the way, you can go into anything with that. You can talk about oddities and characters and rules and the settings and all that. That's what really makes D&D. Now, that being said, which was what worked in 4E and was brought over, 4E was not like some garbage system or something. In fact, what I just said was it was perhaps too good as, as a rule set. And I think some of the ideas of like the simplicity of combat in conception wizards always having something to do through their cantrips right more loose ability to like memorize spells as a wizard monsters having like layer abilities or big crazy abilities all these things were good things that definitely have their roots in 4e and certainly came into the new game and and rightly so i'm going to skip over a couple here because i want to be sure that we try to get to at least some questions from everyone and also because we hit some of the ones that i think are more interesting but i am going to skip down to another question from donald here which is what other and I think this is a neat one. What other games did you guys play slash sample during the fifth edition redesign, which informed your design choices and were incorporated? Were there other games that really influenced what you were doing with Five E that you guys looked to? And we'll stress this is your personal opinion, so there's no uh, copyright slash. <laughs> sure. I don't know whatever the right. If, what, what is that, John? Is that our uh, rules? I don't know. Are, I two days of trademark copyright and patent okay so uh, corrected the the point professor is- on the identity of mayor mccheese contra the hamburger <laughs> and dropped the course okay. true john law school story uh- <laughs> so okay the point is we don't want to put vince in a position where he is uh saying anything about electoral property law but vince can you theorize that or maybe even talk about your own experience what sorts of things were influencing you as you were looking at and thinking about fifth edition yeah sure absolutely i'm i'm happy to speak to my personal opinion i'll, I'll talk to the broader thing for just a second which is this if you want to be a game designer anybody out there in in your audience who has aspirations of being a game designer my best and number one advice for you is read and play as many games as possible period Find everything. Find and play anything and everything you can get your hands on and you can convince your group to play. It will make you a better designer. Um, in the same way that if you want to be an author, you better read a lot of books, right? Don't just read like only Stephen King books and then decide you're going to be a novelist. That's not going to be – that's not going to turn out well for you. And like for example, I know I know Mike Merles has a regular like OD&D game. So I mean so he clearly likes lots of different editions of D&D. Um, or at least he did. I don't know if he still plays it, but he did for a long time. Now, for me myself, yes, I have played and read a ton, a ton, ton, ton of different games. And I'm very much into, like, the anthropological history of RPGs. Are any of you familiar with Shannon Applecline's uh, Designers and Dragons? 
Mm-hmm. It is an awesome book, and I think it's out now in like a collected series of like the 70s, 80s, 90s, and 2000s. And so it's this massive overarching tome of the history of the role-playing game industry, all the big companies it traces, their entire life cycle, the products they produced, the background of what was going on. It's just fantastically well-researched, and I love it. If you, so if you're, a, sort of if you're interested in the, the nerdy history of the RPG industry, there's, it's second to none. That being said, I played – a lot of different things when I was going through there. I played every edition of D&D, certainly, going all the way back to first and the oldest things I could get my hands on, like the Best Me set and Metzers and stuff like that. I played some Dangerous Journeys, which is Gary Gygax's failed and forgotten project from the 90s. So there you go. Uh, If you want to see what happens after you do something so amazing and then keep trying to do new things, that's a great example of that. That didn't turn (laughs) out well. Yeah, Yahtzee, who's like, uh, you know, if you ever watch Zero Punctuation. Yeah, Yeah, on The Escapist. Yes, he has a great saying. I, I think he was talking, I don't remember what game line he was talking about, but it was one of these game designers like Richard Garriott. Maybe it was Richard Garriott. I don't know. He said, if you ever do something great in your life, next thing you should do should be to die. <laughs> it was probably Warren Spector because I know Yahtzee loves Deus Ex as much as I do and probably picked up like Anachronics or something and was not as excited about that. <laughs> sure. So, and I really believe in that. That's why I always shoot for not the best thing ever because I can keep producing average things and I'll be <laughs> shoot low all right i'm gonna i'm gonna knock out a few questions here just because i want to acknowledge that they were asked but on all of these vince indicated that he either does not know or cannot say uh in terms of what's coming up so let me hack through these real quick and bear with me speeding up a bit here but we're kind of running short on time and i want to be sure we get to as many questions as we, as we can so the following questions all fun are this category of either Vince does not have the answer, and so you'll need to ask uh, Jeremy doing sage advice, or there's an NDA in place where ain't nobody going to tell you. Uh, so let's start off with Joe. Uh, when is Epic Level Play going to be supported, uh, such as going beyond level 20? That falls under that category. Uh, Joe, again, when are some of the other core classes going to show up, like the Artificer? This is from Keith. This is one I'd love to see. Are there any plans for mass combat rules as someone whose stories fairly regularly include the players being part of a larger event? I would love to see that, but this is under the rules we either don't know or can't say. Keith, again, what's available or in the works for software tools? And actually, I'm going to pause real briefly on this one. And Vince, you can give me a quick answer or a long answer, just I guess depending on what the reality is here. Why didn't they release a PDF for 5e? Well, I think that there's probably lots of reasons behind that. I don't, I don't know specifically why that decision was made. I think that personally, from my perspective, I think because they saw value in having the physical product and having it out there. And it, they just, I, I'm guessing, probably felt that it wasn't the right choice for various marketing and reasons like that. I, I mean, again, I don't know. It's one of those things that I've, I've wondered about myself many times. Yeah, and to be as blunt as I can possibly be here, while I do not own any, shall we say, illegal copies of the PDF, I have talked to a pretty good number of people who do, not per se because they're looking to rip off Watsy, but because they want the PDF and the PDF isn't available. Now, you can either condemn or justify or whatever that is as your conscience so leads, but it just kind of befuddled me that in 2015, they would opt not to release a PDF. And I was curious if you knew why. Uh, okay, let me knock out some of these other ones real quick, and then we're going to circle back to the questions that do have answers. Uh, this one comes from a guy named Ryan. 
uh, you have a boss and producer who 100% support your creative control. Okay, this is kind of a theoretical question. What would you change about 5e to suit your personal taste? I thought your answer was hilarious. I would throw out about half the rules. That's correct. <laughs> yep. It would be a much shorter book if I was king. Yeah. Uh, this is another one. This is from William. Are they going to release some kind of OGL? Said he didn't know. Are they planning on developing or releasing any addition conversion suggestions or guidelines? This came from Kevin. So if you've got a second or third or whatever edition source book, this is another one you did not know the answer to. And this one also comes from Kevin. To what aspect of the game do they most attribute the success of 5e uh, as shown by its numerous awards and sales? Uh, And you did have an answer to this one. It was brief, but I'll I'll let you go ahead and give this one because it was a brief answer. It was an answer. Sure. Simple to learn, fun to play, lots of depth to explore. I mean, that's it. If you can hit all three of those notes, you've got a winner on your hands. I mean, especially when you've got the name Dungeons & Dragons up on the top of your book, right? So I really do believe in the end it boils down to something that simple. And to make those three beats land is an incredibly complex process, but I think that's where it ended up. All right, now let's circle back here and quickly try to knock down some of these questions that did have a longer answer. This one comes from Ryan. What was the impetus for advantage and disadvantage? Uh, 3.5 was a system of stacking small modifiers, so why go with something so math light? I believe Broder already mentioned how much that this is is a loved thing. And the short answer is because math is hard. And or the slightly longer answer is because Mike Merles is a, a genius. I'll I'll give him full credit for that. I if I'm misattributing, I'm sorry, but I think he was actually the impetus for that. Although I'm sure it probably came up in a session that many people were contributing to. No idea ever is pulled from the void when it comes to these kinds of things. And I already mentioned the cheating in 3x thing. So I mean it's just the case. That math, it just doesn't work. It creates unnecessary weight. And as as Broder said, it's such a good tool for the GM. Sand in the eyes, disadvantage. You got them on the ropes, advantage. It's quick. It's easy to educate. It's that binomial design I was talking about. You can flip it on, flip it off. It make, it keeps things quick. And in the end, you, the last thing you want is something like combat to bog down. Oh, boy. No, no, that's that's a recipe for a bad time. And for anyone who's not good with their math terminology, binomial, I believe, literally just means two numbers. I thought it was a chick that was into different numbers. I, uh, <laughs> two gnomes. <laughs> yes. Yeah, it just means it's two gnomes. Exactly. Yeah. That's right, yeah. A forest gnome and a rock gnome are standing around, and they one of them has advantage and one has disadvantage. They wear little hats. Sexiness ensues. Um, hey, if I had innate illusion casting spells... I sexy all the time. Yeah, mm-hmm. you know, it's kind of Jenny like G, why you are sexy all the time. Oh, thank you, Brodor. <laughs> it's kind of like Mystique. If you can work her past all of her psych issues, that relationship would never get boring. Yeah. Hot <laughs> blue and red hair. She doesn't need to change a thing. <laughs> Except I don't think she has genitals in that form. <laughs> this is a one from Ryan. What are some of your favorite house rules and hacks for 5e? Yeah, so my answer was I play it very stripped down. No optionals, no feats. I don't use any of the extra rules. In fact, if I like I said, I cut many of them, but we tend to play it straight because not the rest of my group is so hard-nosed on this as me. So I'm happy with the game, more or less as it exists. As I said, like my whiskey, I take it neat. Although, as I mentioned, I don't drink, but you know, <laughs> still a nice statement. Like I used to drink my whiskey, I take it neat. There you go. Uh, This one is from Keith. What do you perceive to be the weaknesses of previous editions that you strove to avoid? So for me, and me alone, again, not speaking to any other 
things because one quick point I want to make every single edition of D&D has amazing strengths to it and they all have weaknesses and sometimes they're the same thing one of the fun things you learn in game design and rules writing is that rules aren't free everything you change that does good also does bad right so there's just nothing is ever free in game design but if I was going to point and put my finger on anything, I would say that in some of the editions, just too many rules, too much speaking to the corner cases, not having enough of the weird, and not paying enough attention to the tradition and the history of D&D. It matters more than anything, because more than any other RPG, okay, this game is in the zeitgeist. This game is one of the few RPGs that you can walk up to somebody on the street and say Dungeons and Dragons to them, and they will have preconceived notions of what it's about. That could be as simple as that's for nerds, but they will think something about it. To find somebody who has never heard of it is probably rare. And that is not a thing that's in the rest of the industry. So tradition matters. I think this is where we're going to wrap this one up. There's a couple questions that we were not able to get to. But like I said, in the two hours that we were able to get from Vince, I wanted to try and at least cover some of the high points. So... If you have any questions for Vince, he has generously offered to come visit us on our forums. And so there will be an episode discussion thread where if you've got specific questions or comments uh, or things you that you want to ask him about or talk to him about, you can do it there. I will also put links in the show notes to like his Twitter account and such. If you prefer to find him somewhere other than our forums, you certainly have that option. And I will put in a link to his own website. So if you want to check out his personal game, the narrative game system, uh, which is what he's doing right now outside of D&D 5e and the consulting there, then I certainly hope that you will stop by and give that a look. And Vince, is there anything else that you've got going on or have coming up in the immediate horizon uh, that you'd like people to be aware of? Sure. Uh, yeah, I mean, I don't sleep and I only work, so I always try to keep uh, juggling a lot of balls in the air. If, you, if your listeners are also into war games, I have a YouTube channel and I host a weekly show about Warhammer and miniature wargaming. And if you look for me on YouTube under my name, you can find me there. I also do a lot of videos about game design. Uh, I'm really into miniature painting and I do like commission miniature painting and I paint a bunch of stuff up for contests and things. So that's also a thing. You can look up all my work there. And I'm just actually starting work on another game, which is still in the early planning stages that we will hopefully be getting to sometime in 2016. NGSK, we, we kickstarted NGS. Uh, it was very successful. You know, I'm sure if anybody out there in the audience happens to be one of our backers, thank you. It was much appreciated. I'm very proud of it. We more than doubled our goal and we delivered on time. So like on the date we said we would, we shipped wow. all our books. Are you uh, from Narnia? <laughs> <laughs> I say this as a guy who did an RPG Kickstarter and was many months late as almost all of them appear to be. I salute you because I think you're the only one I've ever even heard of that actually hit their estimated date. Yeah, well, I mean, that didn't come free. So to be very clear, myself, my lead designer and my or my lead developer and my, my co-designer, I would say very conservative estimate. 
put between 800 and 1,000 hours into the Kickstarter and into the project before we ever hit go. Wow. Oh, okay. So you you were actually ready for the project that you told people you were ready for. <laughs> yes, the book that was helps. completely written, edited, and had everything oh, okay. before okay. we ever hit go. Well, yeah. I still give you full credit, but that's different than what most people do, including me. Right. <laughs> I, I'm not going to go on another Kickstarter tangent, but yeah, there is certainly a line of thinking that says it's better to have it done and then fund it. Yes. Than, but that, that's a whole other topic that we've already sure. talked about and are not going to beat to death again but the point being uh once again check the show notes everything that vince just mentioned so if you're interested in his youtube channel if you're interested in uh, his current game any of that stuff we'll have links to that in the show notes so you can find it and then also stop by the forums if you want to talk with him in the show discussion thread so vince thank you very much for joining us it was great talking to you especially since watsi's created so much red tape for us actually talking to any of their people Plus, you seem nicer anyway. <laughs> well, they're all very nice guys, but I thank you very much for that. And I was really, truly honored, and, and it was an absolute pleasure. The honors are. Thank you very much for stopping by. And as for the rest of you guys at home, have a great week and great games. And we will catch you guys next time. See ya. This has been a production of Fear the Boot, copyright 2015. You can find previous episodes and other resources at feartheboot.com. Fear the Boot is also a member of the Pulp Gamer Media Network of Shows. You can find other great shows in this network at pulpgamer.com.